This episode of the Engendered Podcast was recorded live at New York University's College of Global Public Health. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. So welcome, everyone. Thank you so much to first Kristen for helping to arrange and plan this event, to Ramon and to Sophia for their interest and enthusiasm for bringing Seth, uh, and to the NYU College of Global Public Health. My name is Terry Yuan, and I wear many hats. I'm a social entrepreneur. I'm a feminist, intersectional feminist, and I'm an activist, an advocate to end interpersonal violence and gender-based violence. And I'm also a podcast host of my podcast called Engendered. I've invited Seth to join us today. And I want to give you some background on Seth before we get started. Seth Sheldon is an attorney, a scholar, a law professor, an activist, a performer. He's also currently the United Nations liaison for the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, or ICANN. And you may have heard of ICANN's work in the past several years. ICANN won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. And Seth was in Oslo to be part of that momentous honor. ICANN won the Nobel Prize for its work in drawing attention to the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons and for advancing a new treaty prohibiting such weapons. Seth is here with us today to speak about his journey as a scholar and an activist, his work as ICANN's United Nations liaison, and what we can do to help build awareness about these issues and join the movement to promote nuclear disarmament in the United States. We will also be talking about his observations on gender justice in the humanitarian sector. Thank you, Seth, for being a part of today. I really appreciate you sharing your story and experience with me and the NYU community. And I understand that you've not gotten a lot of sleep the past few days, so even more so. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we weren't sure if you're going to be available today because of the, the other um, momentous uh, part of today. But thank you. No, I'm really uh, excited to be here. I hope I, I hope I can do a good job for you. But thank you for having me. I don't think I've ever had a chance to congratulate you in person for being part of the ICANN team to, to win the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. So congratulations. Thank you. It's, it's been, uh, it's been bananas. <laughs> Seth and I know each other from, is it okay for me to share? <laughs> I don't know what you're going to say, but I'll so, just say yes. So we, so, um, Seth's mom is my favorite and most important teacher in my life. And so I, I met Seth through his mom, who taught Gothic English to me for a full year in high school. And so we were part of that community. We went to Stuyvesant High School. And um, his mom is also a great activist. And so I've followed Seth's work and his career and his journey. And one of the things that I read, um, which I was surprised about, is that you in high school spoke in an interview about reading the John Hershey book, Hiroshima, and that having a profound impact on you, which 
I haven't heard anybody having said that about any high school experience. So mm-hmm. I really want you to start off with that. Okay. Well, I didn't speak in the interview. You mean that I, I in another interview, I referenced right, that I read right. that book in high school, which I did. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, it's, um, that's true. That is, I think that, uh, I, I identified that as a turning point in my personal journey with nuclear weapons. Uh, and, you know, I, I, growing up, uh, as a boy in the Cold War era, I dutifully followed my gendered construction and my American identity and understood that um, I was really interested in World War II. I was really, in, um, as an American, I was really interested in World War II as a Jewish uh, person. And uh, I was taught and believed that atomic weapons were the reason that the U.S. won the war in the Pacific, that we saved lives by using them, um, and uh, and that the survival of everyone then, even until that day, was maintained by this delicate ba- balance of power between uh, superpowers that could threaten each other with nuclear annihilation. So I read Hiroshima when I was like, yeah, like 13 or something years old. And uh, the stories that he related so vividly demonstrated the disproportionate, indiscriminate and inhumane impact of, of these weapons on civilian lives. And it was the first time that I was faced with truly thinking through the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a momentous experience. I mean, I've come to believe since that, and because I, and I can trace it to that book, you know, this, this belief I have now that, that no country should have these weapons, um, or be able to, uh, threaten to use them with, without it, that it wouldn't be possible for anyone to have these arsenals without eventually by, whether by purpose or on accident, ending civilization. And so, um, yeah, and that book, I think, led me there. I suppose this is a good time for me to, to plug that in 2015, uh, to commemorate the 70th anniversary of, of the atomic bombings in Hiroshima, the New Yorker put Hiroshima online for free. So anyone can go read it if uh, you want to. Uh, and it's still... It's still online for free? Yeah, yeah, it's still oh. there. I, I checked that link um, the last time I said this. Great, thank <laughs> um, you. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it, for those who don't know what it is, because I guess I could have started with that, it's, 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 uh, John Hersey was, was in Hiroshima in the, in the days following the use of the weapons in, in Hiroshima and um, the first atomic bomb that was dropped in warfare and documented uh, the horrific experiences on specific individuals, uh, and told, told a story about it. I guess every individual needs to decide for themselves if 12 or 13 is too young to, uh, to read a book like that. But for me, it was, uh, in, in whatever else it was, it was hugely impactful. Would you say that your experience was unique as a 13, 14 year old reading that book and your, the impact that it had on you? And I'm, and I'm asking because, um, today happens to also mark the anniversary for the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas um, shooting. And we've seen how these young people over the past year have, you know, really become national leaders or maybe even international leaders and been models for civic action uh, in ways that we haven't seen before. And so I'm wondering, I mean, that was a very exceptional experience. What were some of the experiences of your peers when you read that book? Did you have anybody to share it with and what was their response? I don't know, of course, to a person how people reacted to that book. And I don't have the memory of what other people said. Um, I, I assume that people were similarly 
uh, impacted the way I was, but I'm also sure that some people had had another reaction. And um, and I guess uh, when people have trauma of any kind, I, I suppose they react in different ways. And um, and you know, I, I, I'm I'm incredibly inspired by the March for Our Lives movement and those young people, and incredibly disheartened that it takes. Uh, first-hand experience with tragedy sometimes to motivate people to act. But, um, you know, I was very privileged that this third-hand experience of reading this book is what did it for me and that I didn't have to have something like that. So after college, you went to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. For college, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, for college. Yeah. And um, was there anything there that stood out for you and shaped, continued to shape this consciousness that you started in high school, courses that you took or experiences you've had? Yeah, I'm sure. I haven't thought so much about this, um, I don't think. But first of all, college was a wonderful experience for me. And I had uh, a number of experiences and classes that I, I bet have shaped the way I think about a lot of things, including, of course, the political science classes but I would say that a lot of my favorite classes were, you know, art classes, theater, sculpture, that, um, and it's, I couldn't possibly figure out, traced together how everything added up to, uh, the opinions that I have. I was not, and still am not, do not consider myself a natural, uh, activist. I, I don't like public speaking. I don't like, um, you know, I, I, I've been doing the things I've been doing of late, despite the fact that I don't feel that it's a natural fit for me to think like an activist, to try to frame issues in, you know, in very absolutist kind of sh- short phrases. You know, it's, it's hard for me to, to, to think like that. Um, but I consider it vastly important for people to do it. And so I'm trying to do it more. And I certainly support other people who do do it. But college, you know, to your question, it's just, uh, it's hard to say. Um, I did graduate with a degree in international studies and I, and I focused on economics and I wrote a thesis about the Israeli nuclear uh, program that, of course, was relevant to what I'm doing now. But uh, otherwise, uh, uh, not much was. I wish I had taken more math classes. I wish I had taken more science classes, to be honest. I think that would, uh, have helped me in certain ways. But, uh, but I loved, I loved, going to college. And what made you decide to go to law school? Yeah, I mean, that was not a natural... I didn't think that I was going to law school long before I went. I didn't know what I was heading to do. I certainly didn't see how it was going to lead me to working in nuclear weapons policy. And in fact, that that's compounded by the fact that in American law schools, we don't, in the core curriculum, uh, emphasize international law, or at least the, the main curricula tends to emphasize private and national law over public and international law. However, it, it did seem to me that in graduating for college and not exactly being sure where I was going, that people who... I should also say that I, I came from a background of artists, writers, musicians, teachers uh, in my family, so I didn't know in my family, who to follow or whose path that I should follow when I wanted to do something a little different as well. And it just seemed to me that the people who were trusted with meaningful roles in in policy and society seemed to have backgrounds in law. So I thought, okay, if I want to do something, perhaps 
that's something I should do. I don't recommend that as being a, a motivation necessarily for everyone, but to each their own, I suppose. And But in law school, I, I pursued intellectual property law, and that's still my field, my main field now. Um, and I think it's because if not for understanding law, I did have a basis for understanding creativity and innovation based on my artistic background, and that's the core of IP subject matter. So um, that's how I ended up mm-hmm. doing that. But um, since, since you mentioned laws having practical uses, I, it made me think about David Coleman, the uh, president of the College Board, who recently came out saying that there are two languages or two codes, I guess two languages that he thinks every student should know for the future. And one of them is coding, of course, and the other one is the Constitution. And Mm. so very closely, like just being able to understand sort of the the tools that make up our society, our policies and practices, and, and being able to have a language for being critical of it and potentially making changes to it. Yeah, that, that makes sense was, to me. Yeah. yeah. So you've been not once, but a two-time recipient of the Fulbright Scholarship, first in Latvia and then in Japan as a Fulbright Specialist Program Fellow. In 2012-2013, you were awarded a Fulbright to study in Latvia. We'll start there. Okay. Your project was titled Introduction to the United States Intellectual Property Law in the Global Age, the Intangible Building Blocks of modern commerce. How did that experience build upon your knowledge base on international relations, economics, and contribute to your scholarship in geopolitics? Well, uh, I didn't even remember the title, so you just said. <laughs> uh, I, I think uh, it was my first time living abroad for an extended period of time. I first, traveled first a lot. Of all, I think no. we should say, where's Latvia? Because oh, lot, you, yeah. I don't know if everybody Look, knows, are, because I certainly <laughs> have a hard like time finding it on the map. Europeans who, I, I promise you, have no idea where it is, and people who confuse Balkans and Baltics all the time. And uh, I'm not the making, I'm not making fun of any of them, yeah. because I, 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 I think <laughs> right? I have a lot of trouble with, with semantics and language a lot of the time. And um, But yes, I, I can at least correct it. And uh, yeah, Latvia is, a, well, there's some debate as to whether we would call the region Eastern Europe or Northern Europe in the region, but um, it's one of the three Baltic states, uh, former Soviet republics, uh, formerly of the USSR, uh, and it's from, from west to east. It's Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. And with Latvia sandwiched in the middle, it's a, it's a hidden gem. So I guess I shouldn't say it that much in public. That is a hidden gem to, to ruin that. But it's, it was one of my favorite places I've ever lived. And it was, um, a really, to your first question, I mean, it, it was a very educational experience for me to live at perhaps you could say crossroads of east and west. Um, and to interact in that society for a while. Again, it's one of these things, I don't have a tidy answer for how it adds up to where I am right now, but uh, I got to work a lot with the U.S. Embassy there and with the U.S. Ambassador there. We did some presentations together, and again, it was mostly my focus was on private law. Uh, I wasn't thinking as much about public law uh, at that time, but it, it was. It, it still just has been part of this long and hopefully very continuing road of, of educating and learning about, of educating myself and other people's people as well about um, uh, a whole bunch of things. And I've, I've just learned a, a lot from the experience. Was uh, there anything in particular about that country 
that um, attracted you to studying there and, and the alignment with the, the topic? Well, first that it was a, a, a young state politically, and at least the recent incarnation of, of Latvia and the Baltic states uh, that was still thinking through and continues to still think through some of the earlier stages of its laws. So, you know, I had an opportunity to to work with policymakers. Uh, like, for instance, once I worked with a, a working group that was modifying the Estonian copyright law and um, got to sit in a room with uh, a German copyright professor and uh, a, I guess it was a German, a Russian and I think a Latvian I may have that wrong. I'm not totally remembering, but for, you know, some, some days and, and, and myself and, and everyone would say, well, you know, in Germany, we do this rule this way and you should do it that way. And you know, I would say in America, this is how we do it. You know, how we address that issue or that rule. And, um, that was fascinating. You know? And then they would sit there and think through, well, how should we do it? It's very Estonia to take that example. It's, it's an incredibly, uh, small country compared to, <coughs> If I, I don't know where everyone is from here, but of course, uh, if you're American, it's quite amazing to think through uh, a country that is, I think, 1.2 million people. That's half the size of Brooklyn, basically, mm. and how how differently it works to to write policy with with less bureaucracy than you have in bigger countries. Um, and that that is okay. Now I found a nexus to I think the I can work because that has been part of that experience has been. Uh, I've been working with a lot of smaller states and uh, and completely amazed by how th- how fast things can move in, in states without, you know, 12 levels of bureaucracy to work through any policy. There's positive things to say about that and there's negative things to say about that. But one thing I can certainly say is it's amazing. It's 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 really remarkable uh, how different that is. And growing up as an American it's very eye-opening to see that that's, that exists anywhere. Mm. So in 2016, 2017, you were selected to be a Fulbright Specialist Program Fellow in a shorter program, this time to study in Japan. Yeah. And it was in Japan that you first learned about the long-lasting effects of nuclear weapons on society there. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah. I mean, again, as I would say, it wasn't the first time I had... Uh, thought about that or learned about it, but it was my first time in Japan. So it was the first time I could visit the museums in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and see, uh, those presentations of the impact of, of nuclear weapons there and, and think through the very complicated relationship Japan has with nuclear weapons, uh, firsthand. That was an invaluable experience for me. I was also there during the 2016 election. So, uh, I was having that emotional and intellectual reaction to processing as best as I could some of what happened in uh, 1942, 1945 rather, and at the same time as I was processing what was happening uh, here in 2016. But what I learned as far as the, uh, the f- factual matter, it, it was a lot of things I couldn't that I was able to read in books or even had read in books before. Uh, but uh, I think it was more the emotional impact of seeing it presented by uh, Japanese citizens uh, that that really affected me. But but not only what that, that wasn't the only thing that affected me. For example, I remember being in Hiroshima. They have a hallway 
at the end of the museum because you're directed through it in a, you know, in, in a path. And at the end, you end up in this hallway where there are all these contributions from world leaders who have come to visit Hiroshima and left generally signed something or left a picture or something like this. Uh, of course, uh, one of the most important ones that they were highlighting at that time was President Obama's visit, being the first American president to go to Hiroshima. And uh, there, there was a it was the first time that I cried in that whole museum, I realized, because a lot of it was difficult to process, uh, but it was, uh, again, stuff that I, I kind of understood factually, and oh, who knows why this happened, but I think it was seeing the, his, that they've had this in this display case, these two perfectly folded paper cranes. Now, for those who don't know, of course, the paper cranes are a, an important a symbol used uh, throughout Japan uh, among Japanese people as a symbol of hope, but in particular to commemorate the uh, effects of the atomic bombings. Uh, there was a, a very famous story about a girl who was suffering from radiation, radiation poisoning and a resulting cancer, and who basically said she wanted to make a thousand cranes before she died. And it inspired a lot of people around the world to then make cranes and send them in. So there's cranes everywhere, and paper cranes are a symbol for many people about uh, relating to nuclear weapons. And and so I visited this, I saw this this case with his two, two perfectly folded paper cranes and thought, gosh, you know, this guy is, is good at so many things. And then, I, because it's not easy to do, I've done it myself, and I thought, like, how did they, did they just teach him backstage right there? How did, how did this even happen? You know, and, and then I reflected, right in that moment, I recall, on the notion of our, our next president, who our president-elect, <laughs> being asked to do something like that. And um, yeah, it really, it hit me in a huge way at that moment to think, to think of how, how he would react to, to such a request and, and how, um, how much it matters to, and, and I'm not celebrating, by the way, especially as an ICANN representative, I'm not celebrating uh, Obama's work in uh, it, with respect to nuclear weapons uh, and and our pursuit of, of eliminating nuclear weapons at all, because we do not believe that he was a, a great partner in the end on this issue. But uh, I, rhetoric does matter, we know, and and I believe anyway. And it is important that I think our leadership now reflects a completely different ethic on on this issue, and and and, and would have reacted so so terribly different there. From there, you found your way to ICANN. Um, right. Tell, tell us. Right. It, it was. How did you get in? I mean, that just that experience. That, no, this, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I mean, that definitely links because it was being there that made me think, okay, I, I know that I need to, I do believe my instinct from what I've read and being interested in this issue for so long is that nuclear weapons are going to matter in, a, in an enormous way again. And that proved to be quickly true. I mean, nobody was talking about, nobody in the U.S. was really talking about nuclear weapons in, before 2017, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, and almost immediately, it was back on the table in this, uh, in this major way in terms of world policy. And so I, uh, having seen that coming, knew that I wanted to participate. I knew that uh, the UN was uh, about to start negotiating uh, for some kind of a nuclear weapons ban, and that was a, uh, a hugely historic move in, in shift in the way that the nations of the world were thinking about 
how to deal with nuclear abolition, and I wanted to be a part of it. And I think it's, uh, like so many things, uh, some combination of, uh, of determination, luck, and privilege that led me to get into those negotiations and participate. And I joined initially with, up with um, the uh, Lawyers Committee on Nuclear Policy, which I'm uh, now one of uh, the board members of. And once I was there, I, I quickly started looking to the the campaign for for things to do and uh, started volunteering and working on everything from helping with research and negotiation to uh, then getting much more involved through campaign leaders such as Daniel Hogsta and Tim Tim Wright with lobbying states to support the negotiations, participate in negotiations, and then to vote for adoption of the treaty by the middle of that year in July. Can you break down a little bit? You, you talked about luck, determination, and privilege. What the actual steps were that you took once you had the idea that this is something you wanted to pursue? Okay, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think as soon as I decided that I could do it, the determination part kicked in, and I, I guess, um, spent, I think, like a week in the library, in a library, not like looking at books, but in my, at my computer, uh, researching and trying to figure out everyone who was working on this and who the, who the major players were. Luck was, uh, that I, I picked one person to contact. I just chose one and I couldn't have known then that he would be uh, this is Dr. John Burroughs, who's the executive director of the Lawyers Committee on Nuclear Policy. I couldn't have really known then that he would be so knowledgeable and such a respected resource and that he would have such a, such a role in the negotiations, but he did. And luck as well that he said, yeah, sure, come help me. Um, here's, you know, here's a badge. And, uh, that was it. That was all that it took. And privilege that I managed to have well, both that, that's, I think the privilege was him saying that I could do it because he probably looked at my profile, saw my background and said, sure, this seems like someone who could help me. Uh, but also that I had the opportunity in terms of my time and money to, to volunteer essentially at first. Um, and volunteer full time for so long was, it wasn't not easy for me, but it was more possible than I think for, so many people, obviously, to do that. Mm-hmm. So once you were engaged in working on the campaign, what were some of the challenges that you faced? How did you move past them? Well, uh, I think, well, I already alluded to the fact that I, this is not, that being an activist is not a natural fit for me. Uh, being, uh, I'm an introvert. I don't like talking to in public and I don't like talking. You're also a performer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I think the the great weird dissonance of my life is trying to do things that make me get over the things that I'm not good at. You know, I, I I was saying, I wish I had taken more math and physics in school too, because I'm, I'm not good at it, you know? And I, I I think that that's something I'm always trying to do, but don't always do successfully, of course, but try and break out of that comfort zone. So, yeah, uh, I think that has been and continues to be a big challenge for me is, is working through my shyness and learning from these people who I'm sure deal with the same issues, but are so inspiring with the way they are activists, they are diplomats, they are, uh, policymakers, and they are strong. Um, I've learned from so many women and men who have done such an amazing job uh, for their entire lives and themselves stand on the shoulders, of course, of other people who have worked on nuclear abolition for their entire lives, but are just incredible examples of speaking truth to power and uh, 
and trying to be inspired by them when I can, despite my misgivings about about speaking in, in public or speaking, you know, or, or taking someone on about their strongly held beliefs. So can you talk about also the treaty itself and what you had hoped to accomplish and where we are now? Yeah. Okay. Happily. Um, so the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, I have a copy I could pass around actually, because I talk about it uh, or work with it in some way every day. It was adopted at the United Nations General Assembly on uh, July 7th, 2017, by an overwhelming majority of the world. The vote on July 7th, when it was, well, that's a dramatic story right there that I can also tell the day of the adoption was one of the most exciting days of my life. Uh, but the vote was 122 states to one, uh, with one abstention. And it is, the treaty is the first comprehensive ban on nuclear weapons. Now that's something that we managed for all other weapons of mass destruction prior to now for chemical weapons and biological weapons, landmines, cluster munitions. But, you know, all other weapons of mass destruction except for the most destructive. And so that gap, uh, that, that moral gap, that legal gap was one that, uh, this treaty seeks to rectify. So, uh, by, by a comprehensive ban, what I mean is that the treaty prohibits every action along the life cycle of a nuclear weapon, um, developing, testing, producing, manufacturing, transferring, possessing, stationing, stockpiling, using, of course, and threatening to use, importantly, nuclear weapons. It also has uh, what we call positive obligations, basically requirements that nations have to provide assistance to the victims of the use and testing of nuclear weapons and to remediate uh, environments that have been harmed by or contaminated by nuclear weapons. And um, it also has uh, other prohibitions, including uh, prohibitions on uh, assisting, encouraging, or inducing anyone to to do anything that's prohibited. And that's interpreted very importantly to, in other treaties anyway, generally speaking, to prohibit uh, investment in and um, other financial support for producers of nuclear weapons. So that's what it is, in short. Uh, it's a little longer than that. Uh, and um, what's the status of it, you asked? Uh, so the treaty is not yet in legal force. It will enter into force once 50 nations have ratified it. At the moment, we have 21 ratifications, which is um, at least as fast as similar weapons of mass destruction treaties have gone, uh, including what uh, all states refer to as the cornerstone of the nuclear policy world that we live in today, the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. And we have 70 signatures of the treaty on the treaty, and we have, like I said, 122 states uh, that voted to adopt. And actually, subsequent votes and, and resolutions at the UN have shown that supportive states are closer to 135. So that's what we're drawing from to get our 50. And that is my main job today, as I speak to you today, because I wear so many hats. But uh, working at the UN today, uh, I'm working with these states to encourage them and to work with them on getting to their ratification. Uh, we hope that we will enter into force within about a year or at the end of the year, I, I, I hope, if I can do that work well. So none of the nations that actually have nuclear weapons voted on the treaty. Does that mean that once it's ratified, they're not held to the treaty because they didn't vote on it? Right. Or how does that work, so, work in terms of enforcement? That's, that's right. So the U.S. is not expected to sign or ratify the treaty for some time, sadly. 
they had an opportunity, of course, to participate in, in the treaty and in quite a reversal of the usual, the construct that we're used to. It was the U.S. and their NATO allies that stood outside of the General Assembly on the first day of negotiations and held a protest, which um, struck a lot of people as some some sort of strange role reversal. But we certainly did hope that they would participate. But the strategy, ICANN's strategy, at the same time contemplated and was prepared for the eventuality that the possessor states, of course, might say that we'd we'd like not to abolish these weapons that we have. And so the strategy is is has been clear-eyed and, and realistic about the fact that they would not join and and thought, well, if they do not join, then what impact and how can the rest of the world impact the reality of, of nuclear weapons and in, in the states that actually possess them. And so we have followed the example of other treaties, uh, other weapons of mass destruction treaties that face the similar problem and led the way in what we call the humanitarian shift of the disarmament community, which helped change the way uh, we pursued abolition in, in a way that said, what we can do is have the rest of the world stand up as a coalition against these minority, the minority of, of states that in the case of nuclear weapons, vast minority of states that possess them and pursue them and change the norm around nuclear weapons by agreeing to themselves uh, to a nuclear free world. And then what happens? Uh, as we've seen with these other treaties, it actually does impact the possessor states even as much as they protest that it doesn't, even as much as they make the statements that are necessary for them under international law to say, we are hereby clarifying that this does not apply to us, that we won't sign it, that we will never sign it. Actually, on the day that it was adopted, the U.S. released a statement together with the U.K. and France that went further than we even expected them to go in terms of we, we were prepared for them to say that we do not support this treaty, we won't sign it. They said we will never sign this treaty, which reflects, I think, to me, how not just hubris, but also this this fear on their part that they would protest so much to speak for future generations, you know, people who are not yet born yet, we will never as a state sign this treaty. What is that? What is that? When do we say that? That sounds illogical and, and a little insane to me. And, uh, but we have seen with these other treaties that, uh, by changing the norm and by changing the economics around the production, uh, and possession of, of weapons, that it has an impact even on those states that do not sign, ratify, or even support a treaty like this. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of examples of that. We can speak about how with, for example, cluster munitions, the, the U.S. did not, they resisted both the landmines treaty and the cluster munitions treaty. But even despite that, the last U.S. manufacturer of cluster munitions just, uh, I think now two years ago, Textron said they would no longer manufacture cluster munitions. And uh, they're in Rhode Island. And, you know, they specifically said that that there was no longer enough of a market due to that treaty and that they were trying to recourt investment from people who had pulled out because of that treaty, pulled out of their, you know, their financing and their investments. And so there's many other examples. Like I said, we know that the U.S. Law of War Manual, for example, says that the U.S. forces shall act consistently with treaties even when the U.S. hasn't signed them if they reflect global public opinion. 
And we have, conversely, we have seen memos from manufacturers in the nuclear weapons industry who are celebrating the nuclear posture review, you know, that the Trump's nuclear posture review that, that said we will now be reinvesting in nuclear weapons mm-hmm. to the tune of 1.2 to 1.7 trillion dollars over the next 30 years. So all this to say that we can see the way these treaties and even our treaty already has impacted the way private citizens act and even governments act in states that resist the treaty, and we know that it will have an effect on them, even if until they do join us, which, of course, we hope that they eventually will. Mm-hmm. And there are other ways, too. I mean, it could provoke, you know, and nobody here thinks that adopting or even the entering into force of this treaty is, is, is the end. That, you know, we, we just wipe our hands and say, we did it, you know, that mm-hmm. nuclear weapons are now illegal and, and don't exist if they do. However, we do know that it has the potential to provoke real change in very specific ways. What's the impact of um, two weeks ago when the U.S. pulled out of the INF, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty from 1987, and then Putin a few days later did the same? I think that, well, there's a lot of potential impacts that are withdrawing and, and at this point just saying we're suspending, but likely with the intent to with eventually withdraw from the INF treaty. There's a lot of things that can happen from that, a lot of ripple effects that we see right away. But I think our one immediate takeaway is just another sort of example and, and more evidence to the notion that the U.S. hopes to restart building nuclear weapons, hopes to reinitiate a nuclear arms race uh, because there were many other options than taking that stance and saying that we're going to withdraw. That choice to take this option to withdraw reflects to me a desire to uh, clear the path for reinvestment in and, and uh, rebuilding our nuclear arsenal. I don't mean rebuilding like it's gone, but, but rather building, rebuilding up our nuclear arsenal in, in a way that we haven't seen for, for decades. Yeah. And you started off our conversation talking about how you, when you were young, you subscribed to, you, you were interested in soldiers, et cetera, and that's how you got into and war and general war tropes. Yeah. And so this, I think, is the perfect example of when I saw this news, I posted online, this is just a pissing contest, you know, yeah, you're per- right. a perfect example of masculinity, basically a competition between the two forces and the dangers of of that and, and why we're having this conversation around gender and disarmament. Yeah. And we should, I suppose, not be under any illusion that we've moved on from a huge patriarchal structure that emphasizes these weapons and has emphasized these weapons for, you know, since they existed. Uh, so that's the real driving problem, I think, is that it's so much work to change the way people think about these weapons to begin with. It was work for me to change the way I thought about it. So I know what it's like from from one perspective. But that, yeah, that speaks to this, this fundamental challenge that we have um, and speaks to the fact that we're living in this, uh, in this enormously uh, structured patriarchy uh, when it comes to uh, weaponry and, well, so many things, but in terms of uh, state policy and, uh, and arms. Which brings me to the wider topic of 
philanthropy and gender. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so several years ago, there was a plethora of, it seemed to have come all at once, of news around violations uh, in the humanitarian AIDS community in terms of sexual misconduct. There were international aid workers who were accused of sexual assault, not just of um, sexual harassment of their employees, their staff, and then, of course, of the people that they were supposedly on the ground to serve. And I just want to read something to you about the scandal and have you comment on it. So this happened with, you, you're familiar with some yeah. of these crises, obviously. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know what you're going to say, but I think I mean, so far, so I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, quote, for victims who do manage to speak out, experts say that this culture, quote unquote, of toxic masculinity can make it very difficult for them to be heard. And there was a UN International Development Committee report mm. that cited harassment and assault as being underreported due to the difficulty of reporting abuse and fear of retaliation in general, which I, you know, I think is reflected in all of our systems in larger society and work spaces. So I just, I'm curious, you know, from your experience, is this a topic that is present in the conversations you're having? Are people aware and having, making explicit connections between gender and sexism and the practices and policies that they're actually advancing and then the actual work that they're doing in their relationships that they're developing? Yes, in short. There's a great deal of thinking around this issue and these related issues in the disarmament community, and I'm not the best person to speak to them. Uh, I should say I'm not an expert when it comes to the gendered impacts and gender issues in this community uh, or with these issues. Um, you know, I would... I would refer to thinkers and writers and feminists and activists from like Carol Cohn to Felicity Hill to Ray Atchison and the Women's International League of Peace and Freedom, which is one of the leading thinkers and active uh, organizations in, in this space. I can speak to some of the things that I've learned from them and perhaps sometimes seen even in my brief time mm-hmm. working with this community, but the answer from me is clearly yes. I mean, both at an interpersonal level and even at a nation state level, uh, in terms of, uh, the way policy is created and the way people are represented on delegations and the way we think about arms are all incredibly patriarchal and gendered. And to the examples you gave, I mean, there, there's examples even at the civil society level. And certainly, I'm sure at the state level, I'm less familiar with, but of, of of horrible specific incidents that people have been dealing with that have reflected the fact that feminist voices are way underrepresented in the arms community. So, you know, I mean, what we're dealing with is a long history of gendered constructions that basically say that women shouldn't have a seat at the table and feminist viewpoints shouldn't be reflected when it comes to uh, security and arms policy because women are emotional and weak and also because they are vulnerable and that's the community that we're trying to protect and because we're living in a zero-sum security game where uh, policy should basically reflect that the only issue should be, you know, who who can win in a zero-sum game and that we need to be 
careful about letting issues such as humanitarian consequences uh, be reflected in our policy or even our discussion around that policy. I mean, there's a story that I've I know of like third hand through Ray Atchison, but from Carol Cohn uh, about a, a U.S. policymaker sitting in a high-level room developing strategy around different war game scenarios and where I think I'm not going to get it totally right, but you know, they're doing a, an analysis and somebody says under, under this, under this pathway or this strategy, only 3 million people die. And the guy just goes, you know, says only 3 million, <laughs> you know, as if to say that's, that we should all be cognizant in this room of, of that's uh, something we should all recognize. That's not a good alternative. And the fact that he felt and his, when he tells his story to Carol Cohn that, that he says that he feels ashamed and he's made to feel ostracized and he's basically disinvited from participating because, you know, his reaction to everyone else said that he was weak and feminine. And so that's the construct that we're starting with, and that's what we're working through. And that's very much what I think the movement for humanitarian disarmament and this, what they call the humanitarian shift, as I said, has, has sought to turn on its head and, and introduce those voices, uh, into, into the discussion. And to be clear, of course, that, because I've had to think this through for myself, having joined this community and, and tried to think, you know, well, first of all, I'm a white cis male, so what is my role here and how, what should I do about this? And, and to, just to emphasize for, I mean, probably everyone in this room is more sensitive to this than I am, but just the notion that we're not talking, of course, about, always about men and women in this context. We're talking about masculine, masculinity and feminism. And those are, you know, those of course are, are different. And to that point, even, I mean, while representation of women in state delegations is, is certainly something that's part of this, it's definitely not all of it. I mean, we've had, uh, you know, there's organizations like Article 36 in our community that has studied what's the, what's the representation of women on, on state delegations, for instance, and, you know, to, to, to demonstrate how, uh, how badly in most cases women are represented on, in disarmament delegations. But with the realization that that's not the end of the issue, of course. I mean, if the only thing we changed was the putting more women in a delegation, if those women rose to power in a structure that was masculine, then we're not we're not through the woods in this with this problem in any way. So it's it's really about the perspectives, and and that's an opportunity for for people of all genders, of course, to to work with. So in a moment, we're going to open up to the to the audience um, to the students for questions. Uh, but before that, I always end my conversations with my guests uh, with the engendered questionnaire, mm-hmm. which I ask all of my guests. I've adapted it from the Inside the Actors Studio questionnaire, which you probably are familiar with as an actor. <laughs> probably a fan I, of yeah, James Lipton. Uh, I don't have a, I don't have a favorite <laughs> word. So first question, what, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Well... I guess I could say that there's a range of of things at stake here. I mean, at the very least, at stake is uh, the life and safety of those who are oppressed by by the structure in place, and together with the opportunity for a more rich and full existence by those who are not oppressed. But if that's not enough for you, at the other end of the spectrum, at the maximum, and I mean sincerely that I think that... What's at stake is life itself, civilization, because 
as I was just saying, I think that having a non-patriarchal approach to security, in my opinion, is the key to a, changing the, the environment to make it, to make a more cooperative environment in terms, in, in world security in a way that is necessary to achieve change and, um, and a lasting peace. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is so many things. Uh, my nephew, the Parkland students, as you said, today is the one-year anniversary of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas massacre, and their work has been really inspiring. Um, so many women taking the Congress in 2018, and our treaty. You know, I could say to that question, so on July 7th, 2017, the day that the treaty was uh, adopted, all the states got to go around and make statements about why they voted, how they voted, and the Irish, the Irish foreign minister, this really stuck with me, the, the Irish foreign minister, um, he quoted an Irish poet, Seamus Haney, in his remarks and made this distinction that's really stuck with me, and I'm not going to get it word for word, but it's something like he's distinguishing hope from optimism. So you asked about hope, and he says, and this is this important semantic difference for me now, is he says, uh, Hope is not optimism, which expects things to turn out well. That's what optimism is. But hope is rather something that's more rooted in the conviction that there's a good that's worth fighting for. And I thought that was quite profound. I'm optimistic that this treaty will enter into force. That's what I'm working on. Um, and I'm hopeful that humanity will will see a way to through, through its two great existential threats that we're dealing with right now, climate change and nuclear weapons, both of our own making, you know, and, and, and these are the only two right now. I mean, these are the two that we should all be focused on, I believe. And I believe too that we can solve them. Uh, and so I hope that we, that we use our great ingenuity. We created these problems and we can end them. Um, I believe in the power of humanity to save us from the power of humanity. Final question. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop as individuals or as a society to end gender-based violence? Well, I feel like that's an opportunity for me to tell everyone what they can do to, to support our agenda. Um, you know, because I do think that, I do think, again, not being an authority on, in any way on on gender-related issues, but I do think that these things go hand-in-hand. Hand. Um, I do think, again, that South Africa, in their statement on that July 7th, by the way, they, they uh, this isn't the first time they said this, but they, they coined the term nuclear apartheid, uh, you know, talking about the great power that the nuclear possessor states have and, 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 and utilize over those states that, that don't. Um, and so if you see that nexus, if you see the intersectionality there, then... And these, and I mean, I didn't even speak specifically to you, but you're public health students, if you are, I think you are. Um, you know, we have many arguments to make about the impact of, uh, not just the use of a nuclear weapon in warfare, but even the development, uh, of nuclear weapons, the maintenance of these arsenals, the testing, of course, of nuclear weapons and its great impact on public health. Uh, I hope that I can help people find, and I haven't spoken that much about it here, but the, the way that their cause intersects with our cause. So if you are believe, if you believe that, then to your question, what can you do? You can join us. I mean, 
I'm a member, a campaigner for ICANN, but I told you how, how I got to it, and anyone can, in theory. Um, you need to go to our nuclearban.org, and uh, you can sign up and join for act- updates on actions globally and locally. Um, that's our international organization. We have many... ICANN is a, I didn't really set this up, but is a, is a, is a giant campaign, uh, comprised of, I think it's now 532 partner organizations in a hundred and, I think 103 countries at the moment. So, you know, in the U.S. we have many partners. You can look at nuclearban.us for U.S. related actions. Um, you can ask your Congress people to sign our parliamentary pledge, which is a commitment by legislators to work for their government to join the treaty. That's on the ICANN website. You can ask your mayors to and your city council members to join the ICANN city appeal to say that your city uh, aligns with the treaty. You can work to divest your own money, but also your city's money and your financial institutions and your school's money here, you know, from from the uh, companies that finance nuclear weapons. We have a project, and I'm working on one specifically in New York, but uh, overall, the, the, the Don't Bank on the Bomb project and report addresses um, this. You can read a treaty. <laughs> you know, um, you can talk about the treaty. You can change the way we talk about nuclear weapons. Um, you know, we may not today be able to knock on the White House door and stop the way that Trump and Kim Jong-un engage each other about you know, threaten each other with nuclear annihilation. But by bringing about a change in the way we talk about this issue individually, especially as Americans, to the extent we're Americans here, we can change the way we engage at, at a broader scale uh, and stop future leaders from behaving this way. So those are some That's of the That's a lot. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Seth. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. The following Q&A took place after our live taping of our interview with Seth Sheldon at NYU's College of Global Public Health. How people like make emphasis on nuclear weapons and how nuclear weapons uh, determine the one that is dominant, the country that is with power and everything. And so if all the countries in the end eventually sign this document and agree to it, how do we know that there's no country doing it on the side? Right. How do you prove to the other country? Because just like the way it happened in Hiroshima or everywhere else, like you've been, and then see the effect of this, even though it was in America, but they could see the aftermath of using nuclear weapons in that country. And I'm sure um, every country or every leader will want to like protect the country, yep. like the citizen from having that kind of impact and that. So how do you say that, okay, so we all signed this. Yep. Is there anybody doing it, even saying that I have, this, um, there's no nuclear weapon plant, there's nothing. 
But how do you monitor it? How do you say, yes, we're safe? Is there any research? Like, did you do it? Like, I don't know, like, this is your, in right. your company. I don't know. Saying that, is there any research, ongoing research, why these countries will say no? Why America is saying no? Why the UK is saying no to this point that I'm not going to do this? Because saying never is a huge word. Yeah. Like, so I'm just like, like, just to clarify that from my mind, because like, that can be used by any leader to say, oh, because like, we think we're not safe. That's why we're not signing this. It's a way to convince people that, that aside the fact that people can have like, that mindset of just using the bomb for their main purpose or for any other reasons. So I'm just saying, any research, anything happening to look at why these countries are saying no. Because if you know through basis, the foundation, yeah. you can Well, you bring up so many, so many things. I think that um, we we try to we try we do try to speak to, and we do try to provide research um, on. In the first place, you know, you're talking about. Uh, I mean, overall, I feel like you're asking why do people say no, right? Why do these states say no? And and that answer is pretty easy. I think that. Uh, they say no in, in large part because they've created a system of a zero-sum system where uh, the only way to, to, they say, would say, the only way to deter a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. So if we can't see the parallel there to some of the issues we're talking about in, say, the U.S., with the, even on when we're talking about small arms, uh, you know, I think that it's pretty obvious to us, to a lot of us, that that logic will uh, will basically cause more people to eventually shoot each other. Um, and so the first thing is, is, is taking the structure that's in place. I mean, who are the most powerful countries in the world? And why are they the most powerful? Who are the five permanent members of the UN Security Council? Well, I think it's probably no coincidence, and in fact, it's obviously no coincidence, that those are the original five nuclear powers. And so in that context, we have created a system that everybody obviously wants to have nuclear weapons and pursue them. When North Korea has pursued nuclear weapons um, and we tell them that they shouldn't, which I agree with, I mean, but if they seek a seat, a seat, a t- a seat at the table of power, why wouldn't they? You know, we've built this construction. And... But it's important to note, to I think where you were getting at, that we had a similar construction and a similar problem with other weapons. I mean, people tr- pursued chemical weapons for similar powers. People pursued biological weapons to have similar, to wield similar influence and to be able to threaten their enemies. Uh, but today, nobody boasts of being a chemical weapons country the way they boast about being a nuclear weapons country or a biological weapons country. And it's because we changed the discourse around those weapons. Does that mean that they, people don't still have them? No. I mean, we, we know that Syria used chemical weapons last year, but they, once, once they did, they were a pariah state, and they were quickly forced to join that treaty and to and inspections, you know, have been. Uh, this problem is not solved by any means, but the, the the great pressure has been been brought to them from the international community to 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 to, to rectify that. Um, now, I agree that, uh, especially under international law, but also under any any state law, 
outlawing something doesn't mean that the problem is gone. But that's not a reason why we don't outlaw it. We don't, and, and, and the argument from the other side, which is basically goes along the lines of that logic and says, you know, or the, the, the nuclear powers have said for, for a long time, Donald Trump said in his last State of the Union, not this past one, but the last year's State of the Union, 2017, that one day we will all live in a world where we can, we can get rid of our nuclear weapons. But that's not today. We don't live in a world that's safe for us to disarm. That logic uh, should strike all of us as very twisted and, uh, and, not, and not something we apply to other weapons or, or other, other basically acts we don't like. We don't say, you know, uh, well, we should wait. We, rape is bad, but we should wait till we live in a world that's safe from rape before we make it illegal. We make our norms as society first, and then we work to enforce them. And I think that's uh, what we instinctively all know is true, and yet we've been taught to think otherwise about certain things where what's the common denominator, in my opinion, is, 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 is the financial institutions and the, the great military-industrial complex has taught us to think differently about nuclear weapons. Why should these be the ones that we think differently about? Recognizing that there will be transgressors, there are still, we will, it, it's still by creating a norm and creating laws, we have a better shot at reducing the threat. Uh, rather than some other way of going about it, basically being told that one day it'll just happen. You know, that's not going to happen. We know that's not going to happen. So this has been the reaction of the international community to work for this treaty has been uh, the, the, it is born out of an impatience over 70 years of being told by the nuclear weapons possessor states that we'll get to it one day. And promising even, it was the grand bargain of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in, in 1968 that, uh, you know, we, we basically said that these five states will be the, the nuclear weapon states. No one else should have them. But under Article 6, we will all work towards general and complete disarmament of nuclear weapons. The UN was formed under that mandate as well. That was the first resolution of the United Nations was to work towards nuclear weapons disarmament. <laughs> you know, and so in turn, uh, you know, that was, a, that, was a, that was the grand bargain, but we haven't really managed to implement uh, the disarmament side of that, that, that bargain. And um, that's, you know, that's the rest of the world saying it's time. What do you say to the um, <clears throat> MAGA people and the Trump people and, or people who are not MAGA people and Trump people who would just say um, nuclear weapons are a necessary deterrent? Right. What's, you know, what's the response? My personal response, and I don't speak for ICANN when I say this, because I, I do still... You know, it's again. It's I think it is. There's a great parallels to the to the gun control debate because this is a good data, I think, to 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 link that in to our discussion. And um, you know, and and the same argument. The only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That's the essence of deterrence, right? Um, uh, you know, or or. or well, can, can yeah. I just add to that? Um, but nobody. One, my pet peeve to that argument is that nobody's actually trying to minimize and reduce the number of bad guys. <laughs> Nobody, and, the, and our, as a society, our creation and enablement of them, mm -hmm. and their beliefs and their behaviors that 
then we label bad. Mm -hmm. And so if we actually get to the root cause... Well, and also in the gun control, mm -hmm. I just took a class on it last semester, the, the data would show you otherwise. That yeah, a well, bad guy with a gun does not stop a good guy with a gun. And and so I I thoroughly agree with that, right. of course. You know, and I didn't mean to, to to lay that argument out as something I support. My point, of course, is to say that that argument we can fight with science, we can fight with data, and we do. Uh, and uh, but I will uh, the the point of departure for me, I would say, is yes, I can imagine individual instances where it, you know, obviously, in a very specific case, because this is what they're going to people will argue on, on that side is, you know, it will be different from me, right? And so, sure, I can imagine a circumstance in which maybe you would walk away from that saying, that worked, okay? I will grant you that. My argument is, especially when it comes to nuclear weapons, where the, the actual uh, explosion of, we would say, I mean, studies have shown that basically a limit, even a regional limited nuclear war, say, as many, the India-Pakistan skirmish has been, standoff has been studied in great detail in this regard, could spell the end of civilization. So the question for me is, even if it, you think it works a lot of the time, you're telling me that you're willing to gamble that it will work indefinitely in perpetuity the way you think it's worked for 70 years, perhaps. And, and there's... I think that's a really compelling uh, refutation because nobody can say that. I mean, no scientist has just ever... don't understand the magnitude of what would really happen. Well, and of course, that speaks to an enormous, I think, mission of our campaign is to raise the awareness, especially for young people who have not had any... have not in their lifetimes had to really think through this question. You know, in the 1980s, the, in America, let's say, we were incredibly uh, active on this issue that was, uh, you know, before uh, the uh, Women's March in 2017, the 1982 rally in Central Park on nuclear weapons was the largest demonstration in American history, right? And that was before the Internet, and people were, I don't know, posting up flyers from around the world to go show up at Central Park, and people actually walk there. There are, like, documentaries about people doing all of these walks on foot to Central Park from, like, Seattle and stuff. And that's how motivated people, people were. It was in popular culture. It, people made movies that uh, Ronald Reagan said that the movie The Day After, which was this terrible, low production values, I should say, um, uh, movie, television movie about uh, about the impact of uh, of, of I nuclear had to watch war. And KU because it's set in Kansas yeah. too. Yeah, I mean, the, so you know that 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 is not at the moment the way and it reflected in popular culture the way it was then, and yet the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, who runs the Doomsday Clock, which is our metaphorical assessment of how close we are to Armageddon, says that we are two minutes to midnight right now. That's closer than we were in the 1980s. We're actually, uh, according to the assessment of all these Nobel Prize-winning scientists that run the Doomsday Clock, at a far greater risk at the moment than we have been since the last time it was at two minutes to midnight, which was 1953, right after we tested the first thermonuclear weapon. Um, the U.S. did in the Bikini Atoll, and you know, the, by to me, uh, it, it's something that we should be talking about a lot more than we do. And the key to doing it, I think, is to um, ha helping people understand 
how uh, this issue intersects with the issues that they care about uh, today uh, th that, that are also very important, I think, to them. Is there anything better than the day after Barrage? In, in terms of in terms of being scared, I mean, uh, I especially the artistic side of me hopes that we will tell more stories that help people understand the impact of these weapons. Oh, there's so many. I, recently, I was just there's actually a program at Fordham next weekend. I think. Uh, that I believe they'll be showing uh, this great uh, story, this movie that tells a great story of, the, I think it's called The Nuns and the Bomb. Um, there are these two nuns that work with us. Well, there are many people in the religious community that work with us. Um, but uh, Sister Ardith and Sister Carol, who go around the world, and um, in particular in the U.S., and, and deliver copies of our treaty to, uh, to military bases and to inform them that it exists and that there's a new international law against nuclear weapons. But they have done much more radical things even before then, which, and that's pretty radical. They have, uh, and, and some of these, their partners and have, have had uh, done things like, and I, the, I think the movie is focused on the incident where um, these uh, uh, nuns and I think a priest, but they, they break into the, uh, the uh, facility in, in Tennessee uh, and uh, basically to take uh, some of their own blood that they removed and, and graffiti uh, and put and write, uh, you know, uh, basically deliver messages to the, the, the military base there. And they get ar arrested for doing it, uh, and um, then they get brought to a congressional hearing to talk about the con Congress wants to know how they made, managed to get into the facility because, of course... You know, we need to keep these facilities safe, obviously, but we're, they're not. You know, and and that, of course, if if you're not scared enough by nuclear weapons, I mean, the, there's so many stories and incidents uh, that reflect how how uh, likely and how well how many episodes have occurred where we've almost by accident faced nuclear annihilation, from uh, the Damascus incident where. The, uh, the missile was accidentally launched out of a missile silo uh, in the 1980s um, because a, a, a worker had accidentally dropped a, a, a wrench down a missile silo, which caused the spark that, let, that ignited the missile. The missile went out. Somehow the nuclear warhead did not explode. Several people died from uh, the, 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 the aftermath anyway, but the nuclear warhead didn't go off, which is quite a miracle given that that, that missile at that time held, um, carried, I think it's, and I, I, I know this is difficult to believe, but uh, I believe that it's, it's, it's three times, it, it held three times the uh, dynamite explosive power of all of the bombs dropped in all of World War II, including both atomic bombs. And so it's, re to your point, it's unfathomable to many of us today how, what an end game we're talking about here, uh, and and also how close we've come so many times. How mathematically likely we are to uh, face Armageddon if we don't do anything. Um, and there's so many stories like that. There's the two bombs that were dropped in North Carolina. One of them still not yet recovered. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's the story of and there's a oh here's a movie it was uh, the man who saved the world. The story of the uh, Russian commander 
who received, uh, uh, through the Russian military systems, received a notification and that was verified that said that, American had, that America had launched and was instructed to fire back and launched Russian nuclear missiles against the U.S. and uh, basically defied orders to follow his gut instinct and say, I'm not going to do it, and save the world basically, from the end of the world. And uh, a book that came out recently, Eric Schlosser's Command and Control, that shows, that documents so many um, of the, uh, uh, of the, the, the systems that are in place that, are, that are, are highly suspect in terms of securing these, these world-ending forces. Um, and this is in, from a country that's fairly transparent compared to some, you know, when we think about... Uh, the, the practices and procedures around, uh, you know, like North Korean missiles or, or Israeli missiles, we obviously have, which are, you know, know so little about. Um, it, 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 should, it should, once you wrap your head around it, should scare everyone to the point of, uh, of being compelled to do something. Thank you. Um, thanks for being here. I came in a little late, so you might have already touched on this. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about the international community um, of states and agencies' response to, um, I guess, the the kind of dialogue Trump is uh, bringing to the table right now about pulling out of these, uh, the treaty and um, and their reciprocation from Russia and um, and so what what is the strategy and approach and a conversation in the international community to that? Right. Well, among civil society and the international community, um, uh, the, we did we did touch on this. Uh, Terry asked about the INF, uh, and uh, and in brief, the reaction is that that's a terrible idea. Yeah. These treaties uh, are 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 some of the only things that are keep that are standing in between us and a all out uh, arms race, which will, in our opinion, lead to an inevitable destruction of the of humanity as we know it uh and so the you know it's um it, it's it, it, uh, we 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 fully condemn you know pulling out of these treaties pulling out of the INF but it also is of course reflects our understanding about the US current the current US administration's intent to restart to do just that to restart an arms race uh which uh I think is um is very is very frightening, and it is one of the reasons that the the, the doomsday clock, the atom, bulletin of atomic scientists, did cite that in in saying because their 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 new uh, their new clock just came out a couple weeks ago and said you know we're two minutes to midnight. They said that's that's why you know um, that's one of the reasons why. Um, so you mentioned uh, earlier, well, uh, along this line that. Um, Trump isn't uh, doing anything that's going to help this. But you also mentioned that the previous administration wasn't very helpful either. My question is, what do you see as the best case scenario if there is a change in administration? If there is a change in administration that uh, that's, that swings back to a more uh, progressive, more liberal... Uh, yeah, well, uh, I think that... Uh, Obviously, the best case scenario for us is that the U.S. embraces this treaty and embraces nuclear disarmament in a way that they haven't done. You know, I, I should say that that 
the treaty doesn't mean that, and someone else, other, oh, I think well, he left, but this question about uh, what happens if the U.S., what happens if everyone signs this treaty and somebody holds back and continues to build these weapons? You know, I mean, if the U.S. embraces this treaty, it doesn't mean that suddenly we have no protection against everyone else who has nuclear weapons. I mean, there's these these things contemplate very much that that uh, there are many ways to go about disarming, but the first step is to reflect an intent to disarm, and it, we could do it in, cooperatively, and we could do it, you know, at whatever pace seems safest. There's all kinds of approaches to to going there, but the you know I think the first thing we have to do, as previous administrations have done, uh, is 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 start with the statement, as we've always you know that we've embraced basically since Eisenhower that we need to pursue disarmament, and uh, and here's how we're going to do it, and whether it's our treaty or otherwise, you know we need to do something. But there's. Um, there's many campaigns and many uh, legislators who are thinking about this in some way. Uh, to your question, there's uh, something short of our treaty. There's many options that exist. There's something called the Back from the Brink campaign that addresses, um, you know, f- uh, five steps basically that the U.S. needs to take. Things like taking our um, weapons off hair trigger alert, ending no first use, changing, you know, sole presidential authority to launch these sorts of things that, uh, you know, in, in lieu of Pursuing disarmament are at least some steps that we could take to to make things uh, to change to, to change the current policies around uh, like war weapons. There are little things you can do. And, and uh, as speaking, when I put on my ICANN hat, I say that's not acceptable. I mean, we want we we're not a no first use organization. We're a no use organization. You know, so that's that's not what we're pushing for. However, yeah, I mean there. You know, I, I think, the, and, and to us, to, to the ICANN community, that that's actually some of the challenge around these these incremental steps is that they're often what people pursue in lieu of uh, things that really make uh, make real change. Um, and you know, that's actually been the situation with the disarmament community for many years. And the challenge of it is that we've, you know, the U.S. has put forth this what they call the step-by-step approach to disarmament. And you know, some states are total, thought that seemed totally reasonable. Okay, step by step. You know, what does that mean? And and w- what we feel it means is is that it's basically there. It's not a pathway to disarmament. It's roadblocks to disarmament because, because it's actually going. Once we get mired in fighting for those little steps, we've we've changed. If you know, we've changed the window of the discussion to make to make to make us end up fighting for things that uh, it's that we could be fighting for the real goals. You know, uh, instead we're fighting just as hard for these incremental steps. So that's the challenge of of framing our de- our our debate around that. I think. Um, and you know, and and to make it even more absurd, in the in the last first committee here meetings at the UN, first committee is where uh, the UN representatives meet to discuss disarmament issues once a year. Uh, the U.S. launched a, a new concept that is even uh, a further break. I say, say further beyond the step-by-step approach. They now have we have now released our new approach, which is called CCND, creating the conditions for nuclear disarmament, which you know breaks it down even further. So, it, to me, it's 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 becoming clearer that this is actually pursuing these incremental steps is is actually. A, or letting us pursue these incremental steps is actually kind of a strategy from those who would not let us go far in any way. Conditions to take the steps. Exactly. <laughs> C-C-C-C-N-D. Yeah. 
creating the conditions to create the conditions for nuclear disarmament. So, yeah. Before, um, so I know that we're, we have some time scheduled. If anybody wants to stay, you can come and meet Seth and chat with him personally. Um, but I want to just get on the record that he's a performer. And um, is, do you have a website where people can look up where you're going to be performing? You don't have, want to talk about no. the marks? <laughs> no, I've seen I, him perform. It's, it's to, you know, to add some levity. Um, and I think you should go see him. <laughs> he played, yeah. Well, it's a lot, so, I mean, I mentioned this earlier. I did, my background's in music and, and arts, and uh, my family's in music and arts. So, you know, I've done my, a lot of music and theater and film and stuff. Um, for a lot of my life, uh, it's, I consider it to be like a totally different bucket of work, but at the same time, uh, I do see some synergies uh, the more I do both things. That was my and, other question. Yeah. What are the synergies between um, arts and nuclear disarmament work? I mean, I think um, that for me, one of them, like between arts and law at least, is uh, seeking truth. And, and fighting for change. So I, I think because when I when I do a lot of the arts work, it's always uh, like when I get into the weeds on on examining a project, it's always like, well, what are we trying to say, and what's the essential truth we're trying to investigate? This is a painter. This is a dancer. Oh well, so wow. I mean, I, obviously, I believe everyone's go. artistic, yeah, yeah. so I, we all prob- might be able to identify with right. the concept. And the other, of course, is is humanity itself, right? Um, Seeking truth. I always like to hear how people would answer that question. Oh. Well, you know, I mean, I would say, too, that, like, I, I think a lot about, um, you know, what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. So it's like what I'm doing is, is, is pursuing new norms through or, or world peace through law, you know, new norms through, uh, through, through negotiating new laws. Um, but why, <laughs> you know, that's like, that's the more... The, you know, the answer is love, art, humanity. You know, that's what we exist for. And, you know, that, that's, so, th- that's, where, that's where both hats sort of balance each other in a way that makes sense to me. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.